Uh, if we have some young people to dismiss, I think we'll dismiss them at this time. Junior Church. And uh, the rest of us take our Bibles, turn to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 14. We'll be looking at Numbers chapter 14 this morning. Message entitled, The Stupidity of Spiritual Stubbornness. It's interesting how we talked about stubbornness in our Sunday school lesson from the book of Hosea. Well, we're still talking about Israel, right? So uh, uh, we uh, talked about that already, and uh, it's it's interesting how these uh, lessons, these uh, messages are uh, coinciding with each other a, a bit. Yeah, I know the title of uh, the message is a little bit harsh, right? Uh, You might say, well, pastor, uh, we don't say stupid in our house. Um, But uh, uh, something you say, uh, shouldn't you say something nice this morning, you might ask me. Well, the word stupidity is just a bit strong, isn't it? Yet over the years, I've noticed a trend among backslidden, carnal Christians that are on the run from God. Their logic is illogical. Uh, Their thinking reveals a lack of thought. Uh, Their reasons are unreasonable. Their excuses demonstrate empty-headedness. Their stubbornness manifests itself in sensuality, vanity, frivolity, insanity, calamity, and yes, even that word stupidity. Now why does a wife trash her marriage and jeopardize her children with an adulterous relationship? Why does a husband flush years of marriage to a good wife by a short-term affair with another woman? Why do Christian teens who have parents and a church family that love them spurn their love and their counsel and their compassion and concern to gratify their own will to sin and shatter the lives with their lives with immorality, with drugs and alcohol? Why are carnal Christians bent upon the destruction of their lives? Why do they act so stupidly? Well, our message this morning will provide some of the answers and the consequences of stupidity, of spiritual stubbornness. Now, last Sunday, we looked at the flies in the ointment. Excuse me, the spies in the ointment. It was, wasn't the flies, it was the spies. And so we're still in chapter 14 of of, uh, Numbers and we've uh, just been talking about the spies. Now, they've returned to the land. Uh, ten of them were bad and two were good. You remember singing that song in Sunday school? I don't know uh, if you sang it around here or not. Uh, uh, Moses sent spies to Canaan. Ten were ba- bad and two were good. Well, perhaps uh, you sang that. Perhaps you didn't. But two of them said, let's go. And then ten of them said, oh, no. And those guys over there in Canaan, they're big, they're bad, and they're burly. Notice the response of the people and the stupidity of their spiritual stubbornness. Notice, first of all, the cowardice of the congregation. 
Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. Here's a tidal wave of panic, of fear, of doubt, of unbelief against God's will that sweeps through the camp like a rolling tide. And the people cried and they wept all night long. Now, in the Middle East, I understand that this crying can be very, very loud. It can be like a loud wail. Uh, It's difficult to hear one person weeping, but when a mass of thousands and thousands of people are wailing, uh, it must have had a much more traumatic sound. God's people have come so far. They have been through so much, and now they feel they cannot go any farther. Uh, They were so close to their goal, but they do not have the faith that the Lord, uh, in the Lord to trust them with the obstacles to come, even through the destruction of Pharaoh and the splitting of the Red Sea and the provision of manna and the water in the desert are all still in their memories. These people are not thinking. They're not remembering what God has already done for them. And we do the same thing sometimes. Their misery and their sorrow are the result of their doubt and their unbelief in God. Doubt in the Lord does not fill a person with the joy of the Lord. Satan's crowd claims that Christians do not have any fun. They don't have any joy. Well, the truth of the matter is, those folks who are living in sin do not have the joy of the Lord. They tend to draw, drown uh, their sorrows with drugs and booze and sexuality and even try to drown them in suicide. And so their bad choices create more sorrow for themselves. And their stupidity and spiritual stubbornness and joy can be found in being surrendered and obedient to the will of God. I want you to notice the words of these believers. David said, I delight to do thy will. I delight to do thy will. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Jeremiah said, God's word is the joy of my heart. Paul said, the fruit of the spirit is joy. And Jesus' desire for us this morning is that our joy would be full. Look at your life this morning. Is it filled with doubt? Is it filled with stubbornness? Or is it filled with the joy of the Lord? Secondly, notice the complaining crowd. Verse 2, And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore had... Hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Here you find the rationale or the irrationale or the stupidity of spiritual stubbornness. They thought that Canaan was a crazy plan. Their plan was to go back to Egypt. Well, that plan would be nuts. That's another good way to put it. Egypt was obliterated by the Lord and plundered by the people. 
It was a land where the sting of death of the firstborn was still being felt. It was a land whose army and Pharaoh were drowned in the Red Sea. Do you think that the current Pharaoh would greet them back with open arms and risk another tragedy? I don't think so. It's in my experience as a Christian that those who are backslidden do not think straight. Their goals, their philosophies, their uh, basis of decision are based upon fantasy instead of reality. And they end up getting into big, big trouble. The fact that they want a new leader speaks well of Moses, who was not intimidated. He was not pressured to go backward, but he wanted to go forward in spite of what the majority uh, uh, wanted. What an insult to God's spirit of grace. You know, when times got tough, Israel did not look to God. And in reality, they never could be accused of living by faith. So we have the complaining crowd. And then thirdly, we have the cry to God, verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. Moses and Aaron have their backs against the wall. Uh, They have no control over their situation because they cannot control the hearts of their people. Have you ever been in that, uh, in this boat? How do you respond for, uh, to overwhelming circumstances when things get so hard and so difficult and so, uh, 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 on top of you? What do you do? Well, God wants us to cry out to Him. That's what Moses and Aaron did when they were in trouble. Uh, Some people claim that prayer doesn't work. Prayer doesn't do any good. Oh, yes, it does. It does some good. God deals with the problems as we we will see. People who are truly dependent upon the Lord and they believe He is God, they cry out to Him. And those who are pretenders do not do this, neither do those who are spiritually stubborn and rebellious. Notice, fourthly, the confidence of God. Verse 6, And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to search it is an exceeding good land. If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Now, I want you to observe the response here of Joshua and Caleb. It's even more intense and dramatic because they have seen all that God has in store for his people. They, they tore their clothes. They, it says they rent their clothes. They tore them and it was a sign of distress. They plead with the people again and again. Uh, their plea involves several elements. First of all, uh, there is the possibilities. The possibilities. They're saying, what are you doing? This is not only land, it's an exceedingly great land. And God has given it to us. God has promised it to us. Why are you complaining? Why are you being so stupid about this? Secondly, the preciousness of the people. He said, if the Lord delights in us. Remember, these people were God's people. And God was committed to them. God had made a promise to them. And he delights 
in the, his people. Notice, thirdly, the power of God. It, they said, he's going to bring us to this land. We don't have to do it ourselves. He's going to do it for us. And then the provision of the Lord. The land flows with milk and honey. This plead is the same case we are making today, both of saved and unsaved people. The prospects and the possibilities of heaven are wonderful. The uh, We are precious to the Lord. The death of the saints is precious too, the Bible tells us. And God's power is the power that saves us and keeps us saved. And God provides all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We found here the cowardice of the congregation, the complaint of the crowd, the cry to God, the confidence in God. Notice, though, fifthly, the command about rebellion, verse 9. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us, their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us, fear them not. Joshua and Caleb not only command the people, but they caution them. Don't rebel against God. When God's people rebel, they demonstrate the stupidity of their spiritual stubbornness by their foolish actions and their decisions. Rebellion has damaged every life that it has touched. What does the Bible say about rebellion? Well, let's take a quick look. Let's talk about rebellion. You say, uh, go ahead, preacher. Go ahead and talk about it. I don't want to hear it. But you can go ahead and talk about it. You're going to talk about it anyway. So just go ahead. All right? I'll go ahead. Notice some cases of rebellion in the Bible. There was Lucifer. We know him as Satan. But he wanted to exalt his throne above God. Satan was rebellious. There was Cain. He offered a bloodless sacrifice to God. There was Samson. He disobeyed God and his parents by playing with sin in the wrong crowd. There was Absalom. He rebelled against his father and attempted to overthrow the, uh, his kingdom permanently. There was Hophni and Phinehas. There were the sons of Eli who lived wicked lives and committed sin at the temple of the Lord. There were the sons of Korah. They rebelled against Moses' leadership and authority. There was Jonah. Remember Jonah, he ran from God. God told him to go one direction, he ran the other direction. That's rebellion. There was Israel. Of course, we've been talking about Israel. They rebelled against God. Uh, and in, in the book of Judges, you'll find they rebel seven times. Then there's Achan. He's going to take the gold, uh, garment and the gold and the silver which is in direct violation of God's command. And then in the New Testament, there was the prodigal son. He rebelled against the teachings of his father. And then, again, back in the Old Testament, King Saul. King Saul, he did not destroy Agag and the sheep as was commanded of him. These are all cases, and there are more, many, many more in the scriptures of rebellion in the Bible. But what causes rebellion? What causes rebellion? I don't expect you to get all these down and remember them all, but listen to what the Bible tells us are causes of rebellion. First of all, rejection uh, or self-hatred for the way God made you is rebellion. 
If God made you a man and you think you're a woman, that's rebellion. Rejection and self-hatred of the way God made you is rebellion. Rejection of others. When you take revenge, we're rebelling against God's command that vengeance belongs to Him. Resentment toward authority of parents. We can, again, we've already cited many cases there with Samson and Absalom. Uh, even, even Satan or Lucifer himself was a resentment toward the authority uh, over him. There is reticent immorality. You say, what's that mean? Secret sins. Reticent immorality is secret sins. Sins that you think, well, nobody knows I'm doing this. Well, somebody knows, and that somebody is the only somebody that counts, and that's God. There's reprehensible relationships. Like Samson, the wrong crowd can ruin you. There's remorse as a cause of rebellion. The wrong response to guilt or suffering can spurn rebellion. There are relaxants. I'm talking about illegal mind-altering drugs. There's rock music. The lyrics of rock music are filled with a message of rebellion against authority. There's reverence for Satan. Satan worship is alive and well in our country today. There's ruthlessness of parents. Sometimes parents can overcorrect, and it leads to rebellion as quick as just as quick as no correction does. And there's rapacious attitude, selfishness. That's what that is. Some rebel when they don't get their own way. These are some of the causes of rebellion. But what does the Bible say about rebellion? Notice some Bible comments on rebellion. It's interesting to read the Bible comments on it. How serious is this matter of rebellion? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 27, it says, For I know thy rebellion and thy stiff neck. 1 Samuel chapter 15, 23, it tells us that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. That's serious. Psalm 68 verse 6, The rebellious dwell in a dry land. Isaiah 30 and verse 1, the rebellious cover their sin. They do not take counsel of God. Isaiah 65 verse 2 and then also in verse 5 talks about how they walk in their own thoughts and they have a holier of thou attitude. You ever heard about somebody that says, oh, he's got a holier than thou attitude. Well, that's actually Bible phrase found there in Isaiah. Ezekiel 12 verse 2, it says, they see not and they hear not. Zechariah 7.12, they made their heart as an adamant stone. They're, they're just, they've hardened themselves against God. They've hardened themselves about, against the things of God. The, the Bible doesn't have anything good to say about rebellion. But notice, fourthly, the catastrophe of rebellion. Again, some of the people that we've already talked about, Absalom, he lost his life. There's the sons of Korah. They were swallowed up into the earth. There was Jonah. There was a great fish that swallowed him up. He kept him there three days and three nights. 
Israel has been chastened by her enemies over and over again. Achan lost his family and his life. The prodigal son wasted his inheritance. Those are the catastrophes of rebellion. But then notice the conclusion of rebellion. It'll rob you of God's blessings. It'll ruin your testimony for Christ. It'll ripen your heart for sinful pleasures. It'll raid your mind with bitterness. It releases defiant thoughts uh, toward God. And it rears a miserable future. But that's not all. It receives God's punishment and justice. It recommends you live for yourself. It rewards you with misery and unhappiness. It reduces your ability to discern spiritual truth from God's word. It rejects those who have a concern for your life and who love you. It relaxes your attitude toward praying and Bible study. But that's not all. It resists the friendship of godly Christian friends. It replaces God's authority with self or satanic authority. It revives old sinful habits you once conquered. And it rushes you into a hasty decision before God's timing. So what is the cure for rebellion? The cure, number one, is repentance. To make a 180 degree turn away from the sin of rebellion. The cure for rebellion is revealing. That is, we are to confess, we are to identify our sin and agree with God about our sin. Confess our sin to the Lord and make things right with one another. And then there's replacement. Replace bad habits with good habits. There's reviewing. You know, it's good to think about the day you were saved. Often. Think about how God impressed upon your heart the importance of knowing Christ as your Savior. Review your salvation experience. Review the scriptures that God used to lead you to Christ. And review your submission to God every day. And then recognition. I think we need to recognize three things. The destructiveness of rebellion. The coldness toward God. And spiritual slippage. And the traits and the fruit of rebellion in the lives of others. Notice also, request. Request prayer. And request counsel and help. Refrain from sinful pleasures and temptations and the wrong crowd. uh, And the refuge, get alone with God each day. And rejoice in Christ and others. Remember the misery when you were, when you rebelled and the heartache you brought to others who care about you. And then have a resolve. Resolve you'll never rebel against God again by His grace. These are some things that God's Word teaches us about rebellion. But if we go back to Numbers 14, notice the crazy consideration. Look at verse 10. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones, and the glory of the Lord appeared into the tabernacle of the congregation before all the children of Israel. In spite of all the prayer and the pleads of the forward four, sometimes uh, years ago there was called the Fab Five. They were a basketball team from Michigan. These are the forward four, though. 
Joshua, Aaron, Moses, and Caleb. And they had tried to plead with the people. They prayed to God that God would help them, but the people wanted to stone the, the, pers- the people that had led them to freedom. They wanted to stone the two spies who focused on faith and victory and not defeat. They wanted to stone the friend, that is Aaron, who fueled their wickedness by giving them their golden calf. The friendship of the world is very fickle. When a person walks by sight and not by faith, they do not have the sense enough to know who their true friends are. They tend to turn against those who will help them the most, including parents and pastors and Christian friends. Israel is turning against their true friends. The ones who have told them the truth, and they will not realize it until the damage is done and it's too late. The forward four were leading them to do the will of God. True friends will lead you to do the will of God in your life. God's will is important. In fact, it's vital if you want to be a victorious Christian. I want you to notice five truths about the will of God. First of all, we are to be cognizant of His will. That is, we are to know the will of God. You say, how can I know the will of God? Read His Word. Read the Bible and you will find the will of God for your life. Acts twenty two fourteen it says, And he said, The God of our fathers has chosen thee, that thou shouldst know his will, and see that just one, and shouldst hear the voice of his mouth. We're to be cognizant of his will. We're to know the will of God. Secondly, we're to comprehend his will. We're to understand the will of God. It tells us in Ephesians 5 and verse 17, Wherefore be ye not unwise, but be ye understanding what the will of the Lord is. Thirdly, we're to be cheerful about his will. Some people would say, oh yeah, if I do God's will, I'm going to be miserable. If God makes me go here or go there, if God makes me to be a preacher or a missionary, I'll be miserable. I'll have a terrible life. No, we're to be cheerful about the will of God. Psalm 40 and verse 8, again, David said, I delight to do thy will, O Lord. Yea, thy law is written in my heart. And then fourthly, we're to comply to his will. This means we're to conform ourselves to God's will. Ephesians 6, 6, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. If we're not willing to obey, God is not obligated to reveal it to us. And then, fifthly, we're to confirm His will. Romans 12 and verse 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove, confirm, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As we present ourselves to the Lord for His use, our lives will prove His will by our actions, our attitudes, our attainments and accomplishments, and our adoration of the Lord. I wonder this morning, are you doing God's will? 
We've seen the cowardice of the congregation, the complaining of the crowd, the cry to God, the confidence in God, the command about rebellion, the crazy consideration. And notice one more thing here in Numbers verse uh, chapter 14, the condemnation of the Lord. In verse 11 and 12, it says, And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me, and how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them, I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. And so here you have God considering the rebellion, and it's a very serious matter. And for the second time, he offers to destroy the people and make a new nation. As God condemned these people, men without Christ are condemned by the Lord as well. What do you have to do to go to hell? The answer is nothing. We're condemned in our sin already. John 3.18 says, He that believeth on him that is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Let me ask you this morning, are you saved? Are you saved? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? If so, then are you doing the will of God, or are you spiritually rebellious this morning? Israel came to the place of decision. They had to decide whether they were going to enter the land or not. We find Israel refusing to enter, and the reason is their unbelief. Again, the Bible is its own best commentary, and it's the writer of Hebrews who puts it just that way. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 17 through 19 says, But with whom was he grieved forty years Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness, to whom uh, and to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they would could not enter in because of unbelief. You say, but I'm a I'm a Christian. I'm I'm saved. I believed. Can a Christian have The problem of unbelief, we certainly can. Even if we name the name of Christ and we say, I'm one of God's children, we cannot, uh, we can uh, not believe his promises to us as a believer. I mean, what is it that's keeping you from having a victorious Christian life this morning? It's unbelief. You say, but pastor, I believe. I believe there is a God. I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And He came to die for my sins on Calvary's cross. Yes, but are you believing God for a victorious Christian life? Are you believing Him enough to pray? Are you believing Him enough to read His precious Word, which gives you guidance for every day? Are you believing Him enough to Obey what he tells you in his word. Do you believe God about the confession of sin? Do you believe God when he teaches us to be scripturally baptized after salvation? Do you believe God about church membership in a Bible-believing, Bible-practicing local church? 
Do you believe God about giving of the tithes and the offerings? Do you believe God concerning His will for your life? You see, you don't have to go very far in His Word to find out what His will is concerning your life. And if you don't believe God in these ways, that's called rebellion. You're rebelling against God. Don't be like Israel. Don't have the stupidity of spiritual stubbornness and miss out on the blessings of God in your life. It's not very smart to rebel against God. I trust that God will deal with our hearts this morning as we think about how he dealt with Israel and how he wants to deal with us. Let's bow our heads in prayer.